welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host, Abby Martin. And this is also your host, Robbie Martin. Welcome, How's everyone. Lots has happened, Robbie. We just did a podcast a couple days ago. We covered my lawsuit against the state of Georgia on free speech grounds. Everyone check that out. We also just did a podcast with my friend Ryan Wentz talking about pinkwashing in Israel. Very insightful podcast there. So be sure to check out those two latest podcasts on Media Roots Radio. Yeah, two really good ones. I think you guys really enjoy them. We've actually filled our quota for four episodes this month. So this is our fourth one. So let's give ourselves a pat on the back. And we're going to continue to pump out more content. Like right now, I've been doing a daily show, a live streaming show on YouTube called Main Politics. Um, it airs sort of at irregular times, but every day you can tune in to hear my thoughts, to watch me showcase a retro video game. Most of the time, it's like 75% political talk and uh, 25% video games. So if that sounds like fun to you, check out my new show, Main Politics. We're putting up Spanish subtitles today or tomorrow on GazaFightsForFreedom.com. It's already up in Arabic. So please awesome. spread the word. It's about to air in Gaza at a big um, film premiere as well with the, our colleagues who were involved in shooting the movie there. So stay tuned for That's that. That's awesome. And it's really cool also to like interact with some of the people in the chats that I've been doing for Maine Politics. Um, they're huge fans of you and your movie. And uh, someone said they're working on French subtitles for Gaza Fights for Freedom. So I don't know if you're, you've been working with them on that but, or they're doing it independently. But... Oh, Elizabeth? Yeah, I wow. think so. She jumped in yeah. the chat? Oh, yeah. She's like in the chat all the time. Yeah, That's <laughs> so cool. Yeah, I just talked to her the other day. That's amazing. She came to the Seattle screening. Really oh, great cool. people okay. out there. Yeah, she's she somehow knows the Katabatic people, so I don't know how she originally heard of Media Roots Radio, but it's just cool to like randomly meet people, and I'm like, oh wow, you know this person, you helping Abby with her movie. It's just so it's awesome. So I've been really enjoying it. It's been kind of taking me out of my antisocial uh, isolation to be able to actually like interface with you guys. Yeah, especially yeah, getting off the vortex of negativity on Twitter. It's fun to get out of that oh, and God. do something productive and have people to engage with on a real basis. Yeah, not just the not just the fact that Twitter's so negative, but I just can't stand it I just am so too reactive to it is the problem. Like yeah. certain people's takes, even if it's not like negative or or offensive, it's just like, ugh, come on. Like I just can't yeah. I really have to step away from it sometimes. It well, like embodies the worst aspects of people, including myself, where I feel like if anyone looks at the things that I say, they would just think of me as like a one note person, you know, because it always kind of falls back to just certain things that I talk about. But in reality, we're much more complex and interesting figures than we portray on Twitter, which is just, you know, truncates our beliefs into just like a sentence or two and always yeah. kind of just comes across as annoying. So I try to not take it as seriously as I used to, and I try to spend way less time on it. I think deleting the app on your phone is like a really good first step because it is designed to be addictive and it's designed to suck you in. And it's a time waster, largely, because you never feel like you're caught up enough. No, no. I mean, and it's all, it does, and it does feel like some kind of rat race. As we get closer to the 2020 election, it does feel like things are getting more emotional and that the tensions are being ramped up in ways that like just are, you know, hard to take. But 
as is all social media. And uh, yeah, at this point, I've probably like unfollowed everybody on Facebook who posts like, posts anything I don't like anyway. So that's <laughs> we could create our own tunnel vision if we want. Um, but yeah, speaking of Twitter, we're just going to go over some quick news headlines really quick, which is really crazy that Twitter, and I don't know exactly how this leaked, but it was revealed that Twitter was testing out new fake news vetting features that were really similar to um, the product that Whitney Webb came on Media Roots to discuss called NewsGuard, where it's like a color-coded green, yellow, red kind of like system showing you if something is like accurate or not accurate. Apparently, it's only going to be used on politicians or like political punditry, which seems really like sort of a gray area because people like you and I, Abby, could be considered, I guess, pundits because we have a podcast or because you had a TV show. I don't know. So what do you think about that? I mean, it's kind of like Twitter, as bad as it is, as shitty as it is, and we're describing it right now, it's kind of the last bastion of what we liked about things like Facebook originally. Like it feels still a little bit democratized, you know, more so than the rest of social media. So what do you think oh, this course. is going to do, Abby? If well, especially because it's driven by hyperbole, right? Like that's the point of Twitter is to just say the most outrageous hyperbolic statements. And so how could you falsify those or quantify those as true and false? And who fact checks the fact checkers? We already saw what the outcome of this kind of rollout was on Facebook, where they deemed an organization like the Daily Caller, Tucker Carlson's uh, platform, and also the Atlantic Council, a think tank funded by the U.S. military, NATO, and defense contractors as the arbiters of the truth. And so I don't know who is going to be overseeing this project, who is going to be rolling it out, even if it is something like Wikipedia, where there's some sort of super majority of this alleged democratization of um, users. You have to be like obsessive and deranged in general. If you're like a Wikipedia editor, that's a super editor. Um, and you have to also, again, defer to establishment sources and like corporate media sources. So who determines that? Who determines what is official and what's not, what's true and what's not? It's almost like on Wikipedia, it's almost like you have to f uh, fight it like an information war. Like if we want to put, you know, make sure that our pages or our stuff on there is not like distorted to make us look horrible... <laughs> We actually have to like secretly recruit, you know, people who believe in us and what we're doing to wage war with the Philip Crosses of the world. And it's like a continuous war, too. So, yeah, it's just this is what the Internet's essentially become. Chris Hedges interviewed some woman who did a really good expose on Wikipedia and the problems with the super editing process and just the concept of this so-called democracy on Wikipedia. It is very fascinating. It really sheds a disturbing insight on who's really running the show and who can really manage the narrative. And the Philip Crosses of the world are bizarre. I talked about Philip Cross on Twitter once, and then he went and edited my Wikipedia. Wow. And yeah, he does this to everyone from George Galloway to Rania Kalik to me, to basically anyone that's questioning the official bipartisan foreign policy consensus he obsessively and i don't even think it's one person there's no way that one person oh, no, can no, no, manage no, yeah. all of that well someone actually calculated that he would have to basically be like uh someone who barely sleeps right yeah he'd have to have like a clinical condition where he doesn't require sleep so it's not a, it's not one human being there's right, no, no way and, and what used to happen is like intelligence agencies and governments used to openly 
uh, recruit entities to edit Wikipedia like very flagrantly. And then Wikipedia users got upset. And so they started to obfuscate their actions through firms and quote unquote users or user like Philip Cross. So I think that's what we're seeing here is like there's a firm or just shadowy groups that are doing this kind of stuff on behalf of these agencies. Yeah, some I think it was someone who was like a freshman in college made an app that essentially detected where wherever edits on important Wikipedia pages were coming from. They sort of figured out this database to make it really easy to identify anyone coming from the Fox News building location and anyone coming <laughs> from the Capitol building location wow. in D.C. And remember, yeah. the automatic bot of this app said Abby Martin Wikipedia page edited by someone in like Capitol building D.C. like dot, dot, dot. Yep. And it was, I don't remember what the edit said, but it was like, exposing the fact that in real time this algorithm had tracked that someone from the capitol building was literally <laughs> sitting down to edit your wikipedia page it's unbelievable Amazing. it's unbelievable and it's like yeah i mean we can talk all day about wikipedia we should actually get more in depth about it on another episode after doing a little bit of we research, should do a whole episode really, about it really crazy so yeah um before you get into the trump pardons more election news, this should disturb people, right? And it should also shed some light on the fight and battle we have waged ahead for us for the November election. Donald Trump is barely being primaried, but Republican voters are turning out in droves to vote for him. Huge red flag for November. This is obviously a reflection of all this enthusiasm. He's ginned up all over the country with these giant rallies that he hosts every day, all these stand-up comedy routines that he's doing. He has been doing a get-out-the-vote effort like from the day that he got inaugurated. And I'm going to read from Politico right now. Check out these numbers, Robbie. Trump received more than 31,000 votes in the Iowa caucus. Trump! Holy shit. Trump did, surpassing the 25,000 Democrats who turned out during Barack Obama's 2012 re-election bid. Trump's share was more than four times the number of Republicans who caucused during George W. Bush's 2004 re-election campaign. The vote totals in New Hampshire were even starker. The president That's received so 130,000 votes, more than doubling Obama and Bush's. Super scary. That's how much his base is rallied up and energized to vote for him when he's not even being primaried by anyone serious. No. I mean, when Ann Coulter is the only person, major Republican figure, openly criticizing him, and there's like a complete deafening silence from everybody else, I mean, it's a bad sign. Even Drudge, Abby, I don't know if you saw this, Trump uh, held up a printout of Drudge Report (laughs) at one of his rallies the other day. Did you see this? Yeah, and he said he likes me again. Yeah, he actually said Drudge likes me again, and it kind of seems like he does. So... I'm not saying that impeachment backfired and now everyone, you know, everyone behind Trump is super emboldened and he's going to clean up this election now. But I do think people are vastly underestimating how passionate his supporters still are because their hatred for the Democratic Party far exceeds any disappointment they have about promises he hasn't kept. And that'll continue to be the case. Yeah, and they pick and choose what promises they're excited about. Like, he has kept some really virulent, crazy, racist True. promises against immigrants and Muslims. So I think that it outweighs whatever he didn't do to them. 
Yeah, I, I think I mean, you're to, absolutely to, right. To so, some people, I mean, but yeah, there are. I don't. I'm not going to summarize all of the supporters. Obviously, as racist, but I think that the racist ones are very happy about his term. <laughs> yeah, it's a very easy uh, calculation here. There is a chance that a Democrat will win the 2020 election, and there is a chance that Trump will continue a second term. As dark and scary as that possibility is, we need to accept that that is a very realistic possibility. Like, it's not a far shot or he's ruined himself, he has no chance now. No, it's not even close to that. Like, it's it's very, very possible. So it's, it would be really dumb of us at this point to even remotely act like people did about Hillary in 2016. No, I think he has so that, much more of a chance to win now. I agree. That's what's so creepy. Yeah. It's like, I mean, if you see him in his rallies recently, he's, he just acts like he's just like more full, like more excited about himself than ever before. Like it's just, there were moments where I feel like during impeachment, he was suffering. Um, Russia gate kind of me- messed him up in the head. He was having a hard time, but now it seems like he's on a high again, like just emotionally. It's just creepy to watch him. Yeah. And as much as we're following the Democratic primary, think about going out in the snow in New Hampshire and like the freezing cold and spending your entire afternoon to caucus for Trump. Crazy. Crazy. Unbelievable. Yeah, it is unbelievable. What's also funny to me is even Tucker Carlson is running segments now saying that Roger Stone needs a pardon. This is he was totally railroaded. One of the jurors, I guess, on the jury hates Trump, and that means that you know to them that the whole trial should be thrown out or whatever. So he was sentenced, I think, to f- three to five years or three years. I can't remember. Interestingly, Roger Stone is actually not in jail yet. He wasn't taken out of the courtroom in handcuffs. He was sentenced. But apparently, and from what I've heard from some legal experts, the judge in the case is actually waiting to sentence him in case Trump pardons him, like first, because it'll be just basically a total wash and a waste of time to you know, use the taxpayers' money to bring Roger Stone in to, for a sentencing trial, and then Trump pardons him like the moment he walks out of the courtroom. So that could be what's happening here. But on one level... You do have to wonder, if you are Roger Stone or Paul Manafort right now, would you still be believing that you're going to get a pardon? After what happened? I don't know. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, you would think he probably would, should, yeah, right? I mean, why or not? he would. But at the same time, why hasn't he pardoned Manafort yet? Is he waiting to his second term? I mean, what's going on here? I think if I was Roger Stone or Manafort, I would be worried that Trump was actually not going to pardon me. And what's weird about that is that Trump is actually just randomly pardoning Rob Blagojevich, uh, the guy who was in jail for trying to sell off Obama's Senate seat. So that actually, that pardon from last week got the most headlines. And I think it was almost intentional because a much crazier pardon than happened that same day, Abby, was the pardon of convicted felon Bernard Carrick, who was actually one of George W. Bush's good friends. He was also friends with Donald Rumsfeld. He was Rudy Giuliani's police commissioner, also considered a 9-11 hero like Rudy Giuliani. This guy, Bernard Carrick, was arrested. He was charged for taking bribes, about $250,000 for an Israeli government-friendly figure. 
he was originally supposed to be the head of Homeland Security, but actually because of this pending charge, George W. Bush ended up picking Tom Ridge instead. He worked under Paul Bremer in Iraq as occupation governor, vice occupation governor. Now, what I find strange about all this is Donald Trump also pardoned Scooter Libby. You know, George W. Bush only commuted Scooter's sentence. But about a year ago, Trump actually pardoned Scooter Libby. So what? why is Trump pardoning all these neocons and friends of George W. Bush, but not his own friends? That's kind of an interesting mystery to me. What's that about? I mean, because obviously Trump is not some kind of anti-neocon, anti-establishment force. Um, we already know that. But why would he be so quick to pardon these people? That's a really fascinating thing. And there's also some really suspicious things about Bernard Carrick and 9-11 uh, that raise a lot of questions. So I think people should be looking at his pardon instead of Blagojevich. But of course, the you know CNN, MSNBC, it was just Blagojevich nonstop. Anderson Cooper is bringing him on. But you know Bernard Carrick's been a free man. He's actually been out of jail for many years. And now he's just pardoned, meaning his criminal record has been removed. But actually, someone like Tucker Carlson has actually platformed Bernard Carrick seven times since 2018 on his show. This is George W. Bush's original appointee to Homeland Security. That blows my mind that that's not getting any media attention. But yeah, it's also kind of just shows that Trump really has no loyalty to any of these people he calls his friends. And I think that's also kind of fascinating. Neocon killer, bro. Yeah. I mean, he was even asked recently again, didn't you pardon Roger Stone? That, and he's like, no, like, I want this to play out. Like, we're, we, we need this to, like, play out because... I think he'll be exonerated. Well, he's already been convicted. So what do you mean exonerated? Like, you, is Trump talking about you thinking the trial's going to be overturned? It doesn't even make sense. It kind of reminds me of when he was asked about Assange. And he's like, oh, I don't know. I don't know anything Who's about Assange? WikiLeaks. Like, what are you talking about? Who's Assange when like, years before he said we should kill him and give him the death penalty? <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. All part of the Q plan. Robbie, trust the plan. So yeah, shall we get into the Nevada caucuses and then the primary focus of this episode, which is Mike Bloomberg, the oligarch Republican, who is basically Absolutely, another dude. Trump that is trying to buy the election and also usurp democracy in a way that's really an unprecedented thing that we've never seen before. Should we dive into it? That cannot be overstated. We have never seen anything even remotely like this before. Not just Bloomberg running in this race worth $60 billion, but three individual billionaires all competing for the presidency. I put this question out to Twitter and people who know about geopolitics more than I do. And I asked, has any other nation state or country on the planet yet in the modern era had three billionaires simultaneously running for prime minister of the presidency? The answer is no. I mean, and that shouldn't be too surprising, but that's still a little bit shocking. But Robbie, I thought Russia was an oligarchy, not us. Yeah, that's what's so funny about this, is even the word oligarch now, Abby, apparently means only you can only apply it to Russians, because calling Bloomberg one is offensive. He's not an oligarch, even though he's worth half the amount of the richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos. Senator Bernie Sanders to be the 46th president of the United States of America. And that's how we should want it, Ari, whether we're Republican or Democrat. We should not want the oligarchs or the plutocracy of this 
of this nation right. to be able to buy elections. It should be fueled by the people, and that's how we're running, and that's I how we're going to win. I see you with the O word. I know you guys like that word. Oh, yeah, I'm saying it. Yo, I'm saying it. Can't, yes. can't stop, won't stop, oligarch. Well, as you know, we have all the different candidates on the show. We had Bloomberg the other day. We'll uh, keep asking everybody the questions. I appreciate you joining us on The Beat, Nina. Thank you, Ari. I mean, it's the, just it's so fucking hilarious. The definition of an oligarch is a very rich business leader with a great deal of political influence. Basically, his fucking photo should be next to the definition. But of course, people yeah, I mean, Trump are, can even be considered a borderline of course he, of course. oligarch. I said, even though he's obviously lied about how much he's worth, that's I mean, he 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 aspires to be someone like Michael Bloomberg. He wishes he was as much of an oligarch. He's a wannabe oligarch. Yeah, and you have people like Chris Matthews and Jason Johnson, that um, that guy on MSNBC, who are just feigning complete outrage and shock at Nina Turner, a surrogate for Bernie Sanders, daring to call him an oligarch. And they're like, oh my God, you really want to call Mike Bloomberg an oligarch? Like, first of all, that's something that Russia does, not us. And how divisive, how divisive is that rhetoric? He's trying to help the Democratic Party, Robbie. And and also this Jason Johnson guy was just like, well, if you call him an oligarch, you should call Bernie Sanders one too, because he has that a million was so dollars fucking from, hilarious. from selling his book. <laughs> Is is that guy you just mentioned, is he that bald black guy that yeah. originally that viral video? Yeah, that yeah. was hilarious. He went again on Sirius XM and tried to make the same argument on another show, but it was like a black talk show. And the two hosts were like, well, he, but he is an oligarch. <laughs> yeah, and, and he was like, like that's, that's not, not the, the point. Issue. Yeah, that's not yeah, the Yeah, he's issue. like, that's not the issue. It's like, but what the fuck? <laughs> You're fucking nuts, dude. Like, so Bernie smoked everyone by double digits in Nevada after winning New Hampshire and Iowa in the popular vote. The reason that this is important is because it's something that no candidate has ever done before in the history of U.S. elections, ever. No one has ever won the popular vote in the three first primary states. I think this shows that- I didn't that, know that. Interesting. Yeah, that's a huge, huge aspect of this. You know, no one's really talking about this on the corporate media, of course, because they want to downplay. They were preempting the election by being like, who cares who's going to win first? This is all about who comes in second. Um, and it really shows that he can win white voters as well as minority states. And it shows you that his margin of victory is actually much bigger in minority states. MSNBC had a fucking two minutes hate temper tantrum all night. Chris Matthews looked like he aged 15 years in an hour. He was all wet. He looked like a wet dog. He was out in Vegas saying just ridiculous things like this is the fall of France and World War II that the Democrats would rather the have caucus. four more. Yeah, the Democrats would rather have four more years of Trump than they would hedge their bets on Bernie Sanders. You saw everything from saying Putin is the winner here, Robbie, to young Latinos tricked their Spanish parents into voting for Bernie. And of course, the end-all, be-all talking point is that when you put all the candidates <laughs> together, the centrists still outperform Bernie. So it doesn't matter that Bernie won. And yeah, that's numbers. my favorite one. Yeah. It's such a weird, like, how much percentage of the vote was Trump winning at this point? That's what I want to know. Because one of the things that keeps coming up for me over and over and over again is the fact that this parallels so much the way that the Republican establishment was acting and freaking out over Trump when he started winning in these early uh, caucuses. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I don't even think Trump had this much momentum going into the early caucuses like this. I'll have to look back and see, but I don't think he really clinched it until super tuesday 
You're right. I re- recall. You're right. And Trump didn't win the first three primary states either. I think I can't stress that enough how incredible that is. Then, Robbie, the day before the Nevada caucus, you had the smears of the Russian bots, the allegation from Washington Post, unfounded, fact-free, evidence-free allegations from, again, the intelligence community. On the Washington Post, this is a publication owned by Jeff Bezos, who put out 16 hostile stories to Bernie Sanders in the past 16 hours on the website or the past 12 hours on Washington Post. So this just shows you how much they're going balls to the wall to try to undermine him. And then, of course, this was the big the big tell was that Putin has been helping Bernie Sanders campaign. Putin and the Russian bot troll army that he deployed is the one who's really boosting Sanders, is the one who's really behind these victories and like this wide swath of support. It's offensive to the base. It suggests that people are being tricked by bots. It's outrageous. It's completely outrageous. And again, trying to trying to influence the election by putting this out right on the eve of the primary, making it seem like Bernie didn't talk about it because he's hiding something. Why didn't he denounce Russia? Why didn't he denounce Putin? It's absolutely insane. Well, you just see actually one of the most radical things I've seen Bernie do or say recently was something that will also be looked at as him being Trump-like by these establishment people. And it was, he was asked on the tarmac while he was flying somewhere, um, how come you waited a month to, to talk about the story? And then he's like, and then he's, he like returned back to the reporter. He said something like, how did you guys get the story? He's like, do you know who leaked it? And then they were like, who? And he's like, the Washington Post. Basically, his implication was that he got a secret briefing from somebody in the intelligence community, the FBI apparently, or the CIA, it's not clear about this idea that Russia is trying to help boost his campaign, which is obviously a weird bullshit thing. And he's implying that Jeff Bezos and the Washington Post probably colluding in some regard with intelligence communities leaked this to try to make him look bad. That's what, and, and to do it now, right after his Nevada caucus victory is hilarious. Yeah. It's the timing is cannot be more obvious. That's what they're trying to do. It's so it's fucking, it's actually very, very similar to some of the stuff that intelligence community leaked through the Washington post about Trump to try to undermine him. The parallels are kind of eerie here in a lot of ways. He said he said also on the tarmac, he was just like, yeah, they're good friends. Yeah, really good friends. Like saying that Bezos hates him, obviously. And of yeah. course that they put this story out to hurt him. And you have people like Julia Eoff on CNN today saying her Russian friends, quote unquote, who the fuck are your Russian friends, Julia? Telling her they want Bernie to be the nominee because Trump will crush him in the general. Look at literally any poll of head-to-head combat going into the general election. Bernie is leaps and bounds beyond any other candidate. Everyone else is barely beating him. And that's just a general national poll. When you look at battleground states, they don't have a fucking chance. What do you mean, battle? Like, if it was Bernie versus Trump? No, like, if you look at, like, Pete versus Trump and, like, the, the, you know what I mean, in the actual um, swing states and stuff. So yeah. it's different well, when you're looking like at that. It just sounds like she's lying. Yeah. I don't even believe she talked to any of her Russian friends who's told that to her. It makes no sense. Her you sources in the Russian dumb. government, Robbie. Her sources in the troll farm told her that. Oh, her sources in the troll farm told her that. <laughs> ah, I see. At the Internet Research Agency. 
<laughs> Interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's so predictable. So predictable. They've already tried the misogynist attack. They've already tried the he's Trump-like attack. So now they're just going for the jugular and be like, ah, fuck it. Let's just use Russia again. Fuck it. <laughs> so the problem here that I see with that, Abby, is that Bernie, I don't know if he has the same ability to deflect it all that even Trump had in terms of like accusing him of being a Russian plant. Because Trump could have gone more aggressive towards Putin and been like, I have nothing to do with this, but I will like tell Putin, like, do not fuck with our elections, motherfucker, or whatever, like however Trump would do it. Be aggressive towards Putin. I think what they're trying to set up for Bernie, and I don't know if this is what they're actually trying to do, but it's working on me if this is what they're trying to do, is to turn me off to this idea that when he's asked about these things, he'll actually go after Russia and say that unlike Trump or compare himself to Trump, he'll go after Russia. And he kind of did it in regards to this new leak. So that's the problem I see moving forward is that I'm worried that Bernie will capitulate to some of those attacks and and like start firing at Russia as a way to deflect them instead of just like completely deflecting them. Yeah, no, he did a bad job at the debate. He did a bad job at the debate about the Russia question and also the Bernie bro question. I was upset. Well, the Bernie bro question was the, that was the worst one because he didn't have to say anything about Russia. That was like, that actually made me worried about who his advisors are that are, Oh, we know who his advisors are. (laughs) Well, Dus. Yeah. I mean, it's awful. But yeah, I mean, I was pissed. I was really pissed. I was just like, dude, you could crush these people. You could go and just squash them like ants, and instead you yeah. are capitulating to these talking points, and it is so damaging and unnecessary. Well, because it, it, it just didn't make any sense, because not only did he unnecessarily put it into the framing of Russia sowing division in this country, which he didn't have to do at all. The question was just about Bernie bros. He also didn't completely deflect the idea that Bernie bros are a thing that are, is causing division. He basically made it sound like, well, if there is like division or whatever, like it's it's probably not the coming from me. It's coming from like someone like Russia. Just say, just flip it around on them, like yeah, like someone like Trump would be like, what are you jealous that I have this many passionate right. supporters? Right. Yeah, like I have a bunch of people who fucking love me, dude. Like, <laughs> there's something about his personality that capitulates too much when he's pushed up against some of these walls. And I know that sometimes he does give a good answer and he does deflect things, but sometimes I'm like, dude, why did you not like, why? I, oh it was, God, yeah, that no. was really frustrating, especially after he slams Bloomberg right out of the gates in the debate. So that actually made me think, okay, this is going to be like Bernie's best one yet. Yeah, no, I was super deflated leading up to that. There were constant attacks from Biden, Warren and Pete disingenuous attacks about Bernie bro supporters because They don't have anything to attack him on his policies. So they have to go over his support base, millions of people who are involved in the campaign, millions more who are upset, understandably, for not having fucking health care, dying, having to solicit GoFundMe donations to get insulin. This is why people are upset. These centrist, elitist assholes have no finger on the pulse of actual working class people in this country. So they have to just say, why are these people so angry? Why does your campaign garner so much anger? Well, first of all, you think that you're going to be able to beat Trump 
and you're complaining about Bernie bros and Twitter? Bernie bros comes out of the corporate media facing accountability for the first time. Before Twitter existed, they were able to print whatever they wanted with barely any pushback or feedback from the general public. For the first time in history, politicians, public figures, and corporate media accounts are acting like they're oppressed because they're finally getting pushback from the public saying, no, this is wrong. No, this is fucking stupid. No. Why are you printing this? Oh my God, this is horrifying. Oh my God, soliciting Twitter to try to change the rules so they can manage who's commenting on their threads. They never saw feedback in general before. And if I were Bernie, I would say, yeah, the system is putting down millions of people who are on the cusp of like losing everything. Yeah, I don't blame them for being upset. And also, give us some receipts. Who? What are you talking about, Bernie bro attacks? Someone saying, shut up? I mean, we all saw that CNN attack ad against the Bernie bro thing, and the, the examples were laughable. It was literally people posting emojis of rats and snakes to Pete Buttigieg and Elizabeth Warren. It's like, you guys got to grow up, bro. This is the Bernie bro attacks? Snakes and and rats? It's fucking dumb. And um, it's not going <laughs> to beat Trump because Trump's followers are way more crazy. Have you seen Trump's followers online? Jesus Christ. And all they have, and you see Warren doubling down on this shit. All she's doing is using sexism and gender-based attacks against Bernie now. Whether it's the Bernie bro stuff, whether it's Bernie's a sexist, now she's coming out and saying she had to get a super PAC, Robbie, after denouncing them the entirety of her candidacy, after getting up on the debate stage and saying, me and Amy, you know, we don't have super PACs and all the men do, all the men have super PACs. And then she turns around and she's like, well, because all the men had super PACs, we figure why should the women not? And so I had to get one. Oh my God. Yeah. It was just like, what are you talking about? Why is Elizabeth She's Warren in the race? Why is Tom Steyer in the race? Why is Tulsi Gabbard in the race? Well, the Tulsi thing, I, I think that actually makes perfect sense to me because she knows this will just continue to increase her sort of anti-establishment, in quotes, I'm putting in quotes, credibility moving forward for whatever career trajectory she has. But she only got like a couple dozen votes. Of in the course, Nevada but she has caucus. nothing to lose. She could say whatever she wants to do to build her brand now with no risk to her standing. So, but the longer she stays in the race, the more attention she will get media-wise. So, from her perspective, if she's really in this for a future career trajectory, she will just probably just stay in till the bitter end. I would even be surprised if she got out and endorsed Bernie in like a strong way at this point. But maybe she will. I don't know. Well, the good thing is she has no effect. I mean, I would make a much stronger argument against Tom Steyer staying in the race than I would against Tulsi Gabbard at this point because she's polling 0%. But Tom Steyer's continuation in the race shows what the influence of a billionaire can do. He exploited the whole impeachment newsletter that he was sending out to get all these emails. And then he basically is like polling 10% in some of these states. It's like, dude, who is this person? This is what ads can do. Yeah, did you know that he actually led the effort on like getting public support for impeachment through buying all these ads before he ran for president? Yeah, and then he used all the email lists that he had accumulated to launch his campaign. It was quite it's fascinating. Yeah. I wonder if any of the Democrats actually got like sucked into it via him originally. <laughs> like cuz he was apparently he's been at this since like 2016 trying to launch this impeachment effort. 
I guess one of the most surprising things to me about all this is how open some of these MSNBC people, especially because oddly, this actually shows a contrast between CNN and MSNBC right now. The CNN people don't seem to be like as invested in the Democratic Party as the MSNBC people are. So MSNBC was really freaking out, as you mentioned earlier. Not just Chris Matthews, but all these other talking heads were. And they were openly talking about on TV why a contested convention actually would be a good idea if Bernie gets the nomination. That is so crazy because it was publicly discussed doing a contested convention against Trump if he got the nomination, but it was not publicly discussed on like a 24-hour news channel on like a panel. That's like I'm way more out in the open and brazen. The GOP people talking about it were doing it. They thought they weren't going to be like recorded. I mean, actually, they probably did. They were. It was on the circus, if, if you know the Showtime show about politics. Um, there's a scene in it where some of the GOP elites are talking about this at a private dinner. But they're saying this on TV about Bernie Sanders. It is absolutely fucking crazy that they're talking about doing a contested convention this early, even before Super Tuesday. I mean, it wasn't until after Super Tuesday that the GOP elites openly floated the idea of a contested convention against Trump. And even then, they did it a lot more secretly. This is so brazen that they're already talking this way about Bernie. It's almost like the DNC leaks from the last election really made them like rats trapped in a corner, Abby, to such an extent that they're just like now just like openly acting super monstrous and not even like worrying about it. They're just like, fuck the contested convention, like fuck this fucking guy. It's like they cannot contain their corruption. So, you know, you would think that the DNC would try to act more transparently, would try to rebrand themselves as being like less corrupt, more honest, more democratic, but they've actually done the opposite since the 2016 DNC leaks. They've actually done the opposite. This seems more corrupt and insane to me than even last time. We don't even know what's going on behind the scenes. Can you imagine if there was a leak now? Like what kind of shit we would learn about what they were trying to, how they were trying to oh, rig man, it against Bernie this time? I wish that there were. I wish that there were. Oh my God. I mean, we would probably be like, be like, holy shit. Well, and this is, this is precisely why the DNC is different than the RNC. And this is why Trump was able to propel himself despite the never Trumpers and all the Republicans trying to unite against him is that the RNC doesn't have this super delegate process. They don't have the ability for a second ballot to have super delegates come in and usurp the primary process from the nominee. The DNC has a clearly rigged system precisely because there is a chance that an actual grassroots populist could come in. There's really no chance for that in the Republican Party because the Republican Party is inherently like racist and not class-oriented. And, and doesn't really care about, like, uplifting poor people. So they didn't really have that risk. I mean, Trump was a risk for entirely different reasons to the ruling class because of how just uncontrollable he was. But this is why the Democratic Party has locked this down in such a way, because they knew there was always a chance for some sort of populist insurgency, and they had to nip that in the bud right away. This rule prohibiting superdelegates from voting on the first ballot is only because of last last time because of what happened to Bernie Sanders. Watch Fahrenheit 11.9. So this used to be even worse. But the fact that they're openly talking about this, not only on MSNBC, but all of the candidates in the debate, 
the last question was, should the nominee who has a plurality of the delegates and a clear majority of the votes get the nomination? And every single one said no, except Bernie. Every single one said, basically, we don't believe in democracy (laughs) and we want to rig the entire election. And I was just like, holy shit, dude, this is the most insane thing I've ever heard in my life. It's... But Abby, I mean, you have to admit that was pretty uh, rude and actually violent what Bernie supporters did when they threw all those chairs. <laughs> that was, I mean, that was extremely, it looked really bad for them. And it, and it just made, exposed the Bernie bros for the misogynist, violent, you know, people that they are, which is so hilarious. You know, the story I just mentioned, I was being sarcastic, is fake, made up. But in Fahrenheit 11.9, Michael Moore actually takes you through and reminds you, he does a beautiful job of this, and I actually give him a lot of credit for doing this. He reminds you what happened, because we've forgotten all the other crazy shit that happened, where the DNC um, officials actually tried to like shut out the Bernie delegates and the by like turning off the lights and like removing their chairs. <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, so that's actually Michael Moore shows that in the, in Fahrenheit eleven nine. I'm like, oh yeah, I totally forgot about that. Like, wow, they did do that. What fucking snakes? That they would do that. Robbie, you're being a Bernie bro. You're, you're saying the word snake. That's rude. Don't do that. Don't tweet out a snake Oh, because emoji. it's a woman, right? Or yeah. something. What if someone said it's like Bib... <laughs> yeah. I, for, I don't even remember. There was, I, that was one of those triangulated like attacks trying to say that his supporters were not woke enough. Yeah, and it was enough. surreal to see Pete Buttigieg give a, another fake victory speech last night, first of all, tweet out some bizarre thread about how he doesn't see color, um, just going on and on and on. But his actual speech was surreal because he gets up there, like he he basically admitted that Bernie will win the um, primary process, but that at the convention something needs to happen to prevent him from actually taking the nomination. And I was just like, this is absolutely insane. As you said, before Super Tuesday, to have yeah. someone like Pete Buttigieg just openly talk about this, and then all the networks follow suit, and they're just like, he has a point. Like, when you put the centrist votes together, like, they, you know, we can't let this happen. Dude, can you imagine at this point, too? Here's another thing. I just want to throw a slight cur- curveball at you here, because before we move on to Bloomberg, the idea that, Fox News is doing a better job of actually covering how corrupt the DNC is treating Bernie right now and how unfair MSNBC is treating Bernie right now than any other media network. And that's not to give totally. any credit to Fox News. No, totally. That's very easy to do. But then you have to wonder, why are they doing that? Are they trying to disrupt the process and like dunk on the Democratic Party? Do they Are they doing their own Pied Piper effect on Bernie Sanders in the same way that the DNC did the Pied Piper effect on Trump, thinking that that would actually make Hillary win. Are they doing the same thing? Do they think that Bernie is so beatable because they can just use the communist label on him that they're doing their own Pied Piper strategy? It's actually really fascinating to me to watch the Trump family talking about uh, Jill Stein on Twitter. Trump is like, now they're trying to do to Bernie what they tried to do to Jill Stein and (laughs) Tulsi Gabbard with the Russian plant thing. That's so crazy that Trump is saying something that cuts through all this other shit. He still knows how to do that populist thing. And it's not reptile brain stuff. It's actually like common sense stuff in a way. This is like actually Trump tapping into something that I I will agree. And I think you would agree is actually common sense in that specific instance. 
And that's so weird to me that Fox News is beating on the DNC for how they're treating Bernie right now. But then, Abby, at the same time, Pete Buttigieg goes on Fox News to do a town hall. None of the establishment goes after him for that. But the second, but the second Bernie decides to do anything on Fox News, you better believe they're coming for him. They'll have like a hundred hit pieces out the day he goes on Fox News for a five minute segment and being like, Bernie's like a traitor to the Democratic Party. Now he's appealing to the right. They'll have them all ready to go. So Buttigieg is an obvious plant. Like even the fact that he said that and then the media followed suit, it's like, dude, what's really going on here? Like, come on. (laughs) Yeah, I like how Trump tweeted out, like, hopefully they don't do what they did to him last time. Like they're going to do the same thing to Bernie. And it's just like, yeah. I, why are What's you saying this? What's the strategy I don't, I don't understand. I mean, What's maybe Fox is taking a cue from Trump. But, okay, well, if that's the case, don't they remember that the DNC and the Hillary camp did the, you know, did the Pied Piper strategy on Trump and it backfired on them? Right. Are they that confident that if Bernie wins the nomination, they could trounce him? No, I mean, maybe he's, maybe he's doing like reverse psychology because we know from that leaked recording that Trump said himself that he's most scared of Bernie. He said because Bernie has actual followers. Or here's the other thing that would, could be bad. What if they're trying to bait Bernie into saying anti like Russian stuff and then talking about Trump being like colluding with Russia? Like that could be part of it too, because if Bernie starts going down that road, that's when I'll be like, okay, you really got to stop. Like, this is not the way to go after Trump. Because so far, Abby, somehow in this election cycle, it hasn't been about Trump colluding with Russia, even though we went through like several years of that being the main issue about Trump. So the fact that the Democratic debates have not been really about that is interesting. And I'm worried that that's going to be something that's going to come up again in a major way soon. Like I, I feel, and I feel like we're kind of going there already. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, and I agree, and it, we're seeing that right now be resurrected. But speaking of Russian oligarchs influencing the U.S., let's talk about Mike Bloomberg because this is a person who was Fuck completely yeah. bought out by the financial sector and real estate industry. That's why you see dozens of photos of him partying with Trump, golfing with Trump, and it is funny that he's called Mini Mike Party because he Kisley literally Maxwell. is like two feet shorter than Trump. <laughs> like he really does yeah. look like a Mini-me. very very silly. Perfect. He also um he also like let in a lot of Russian oligarchs into New York to buy out a lot of this real estate shit. So it's just funny that that's not an issue. Mike Bloomberg being this slumlord real estate kingpin just like Trump that destroyed New York in ways that can never be recovered. Like, it basically just depends on what website you read, but he is one of the 10 richest people in the world. I've read that he's the ninth richest person in the world, but then I read that ninth richest in the U.S. I think that because the majority of the richest people are like Americans, he is one of the richest people in the world. He has a net worth of nearly $60 billion, in which he makes $2 billion every year off of it. That's how much capital he accumulates just off of the wealth that he already has. And check this out. When he was mayor, he started off with $2 billion, which is, I guess, how much Tom Steyer Steyer has, left office with $20 billion from unaccountable real estate deals managed from his tax havens in Bermuda. And now, just a couple years later, he has almost $60 billion. 
This is why fucking billionaires shouldn't exist, dude. Like, what the hell? How is this even possible that you could accumulate that much money? You start off with two billion. He has 60 billion less than two decades later. That's scary. I just don't even understand. So I don't know exactly how he initially got that rich, but I'm sure anyone who has a billion dollars did a lot of shady shit. And the fact that he was a Republican mayor for 12 years is hilarious to me. It's indistinguishable from Trump. There is no vote blue no matter who. He's a fucking Republican. And he bought a third term of mayor with his money. There were strict term limits in place in New York. And he bribed all of these nonprofits, all of these news agencies and other politicians with millions and millions of dollars, spent a ridiculous amount of money to overturn that and win a third term, which was unprecedented, just like he's buying these endorsements today. Members of the Black Caucus and different politicians that are endorsing his presidency, it all goes back to the money, baby! Paying millions and millions of dollars to their races. It's, first of all, I don't know if, how much TV you still watch, Abby. I don't know why Lori and I still have cable, but I have seen far more Michael Bloomberg ads on pretty much every channel we watch than any other candidate by far. And they're different ads. They're not just repeating the same ads. They're like all these different, there seems to be dozens of different ones. And um, I saw at least two of them that were very black-centric ads where the narration during the ad was like a a black man's voice. And it was like uh, very much trying to appeal to black voters. And it it was very pandering and uh, very disturbing. Just how much TV presence you can feel just if you watch cable still. I mean, if you haven't noticed it online, that's one thing. But on TV, it's very noticeable how much money, you know, you can kind of get a gauge of how expensive it is because you'll see other commercials. You'll see like Geico insurance commercials, you know, these big corporations advertising and how much the ratio of Bloomberg advertising just in California when he knows he has no chance of winning here. It's pretty nutty. And Bill Crystal Abbey is actually calling on him to spend $200 million more million on Super Tuesday. He literally is pleading for Michael Bloomberg to spend that much more money on To try Tuesday. to discredit Bernie, right? My primarily? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I mean, the Bloomberg campaign has disclosed nearly $500 million in broadcast, radio, and cable ads, $42 million on Facebook ads, $40 million on Google ads, Think about how much money that is. God knows how much on staff, research, and polling. Um, Absolutely unprecedented. I remember during the Obama 2008 race, I think that was the first election in American history that hit a billion dollars. And we were shocked back then. I mean, this is looking to be a multi-billion dollar effort just on his behalf to buy his way into relevancy and his candidacy in general. He gave the DNC $300,000. That's how we know he got into the debates. You know, there was this really strict threshold of donor qualifications. This is how Tulsi Gabbard, Andrew Yang, a lot of these other people weren't qualified because you had to have, I think, 200,000 unique donors. And Bloomberg gave the DNC, just straight up bribed them $300,000, gave nearly a million dollars, $800,000 to some other Democratic Party group, and is giving millions of dollars, maybe thousands, depending on what the criteria is for the state parties. But he is like maxing out donations for the respective state parties as well. This is happening. 
It is so blatant and so crazy. And and this is aside from like the meme influencers, these people who were responsible for the fire festival, all the sponsored content on Instagram, you see the bot farms real time on Twitter. Yeah. God, yeah, it's it's so disturbing. I mean, because he's worth sixty billion dollars and the Obama campaign apparently costs something like a billion dollars. Uh, the re-election campaign, I think, you know, in totality. So, you know, he it seems like he's already on his way to blowing a billion dollars just only on like two thirds of the primary states. Because as Joe Biden said in this hilarious clip, I don't know if you saw this, Abby, it was actually a clip where I kind of almost felt sorry for Joe Biden for a second. Like one of those rare times where you actually like see him as a human being, where he was being asked in like a airport or something, He's like, so what do you think about Bloomberg uh, being um, part of the next debates, the Democratic primary debates? And Biden just like looked at the reporter, like sort of like confused looking with his mouth agape. And he's like, he's not even on the ballot in Nevada. <laughs> <laughs> and then he just like walked away and sort of like shrugged his shoulders and put his hands up in there. <laughs> it was like, what? I mean, it is like, a, it, it's it's very weird that he would be debating at the d- debate in Nevada Right before the Nevada caucus, not being on the ballot. I mean, that is a strange strategy. Did he use an algorithm? Is he playing Moneyball? <laughs> Have you seen the movie Moneyball? That with no. the Oakland A's? Well, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's about them hiring like a computer scientist to pick the new A's team by like using an algorithm to like figure out all these different ways that they could win using like weird players. Oh, it was like is what Hillary Bloomberg Clinton using- did with Siri or whatever on, <laughs> on her yeah. last campaign. Well, yeah, it makes you wonder, is Bloomberg deciding this late in the game? Is he like, okay, now I'm going to run for president. Like, okay, let's do it now. Or is this like a long-term strategy where it's like he's calculated out or that he's had a team of people who's been like, okay, you can skip the first third. (laughs) We've calculated this in computers that you can literally skip the first third of this contest and you could still win if you spend this much money in these states or whatever. Is there a strategy here? That's a lot of money to be spending if he has no chance of winning, I mean, if it's just about stopping Bernie, you know, is that what it's actually really about? And why would he be so personally invested in stopping Bernie? Is he just going to get taxed more? What I don't know. What do you think? Last February of 2019, he was asked by people, you know, are you going to run? And he said, no, unequivocally not going to run for president. Because everyone was just like soliciting billionaires and shit to run against Trump. It was like everyone was asked, like, would you run against Trump? You know, and... Um, apparently after Jeff Bezos, who's also a good friend of his and of course the richest person in the world worth what, $120 billion asked him personally, like he, can he run? And it was precisely because Bernie, yeah, precisely because Bernie was looking like too much of a threat. This was right in the midst of this campaign, the shaming campaign that Bernie and I guess Warren was a part of too, that was trying to tell Bezos that he was paying Amazon workers slave wages And really, through this public pressure campaign, Amazon ended up raising wages for their workers. It was like a huge feat, actually. And Jeff Bezos asked Bloomberg, can you run? Apparently, Bloomberg claims that he said no. He was trying to get Bezos to get Amazon headquarters in New York. I don't know if that had an influence on it. It's just really interesting that he's able to legally jump into an election like just two months ago. I mean, this is like late October 
after saying he was he would already not run. He's not even qualified to be on the ballot in the first like four states. I think Super Tuesday is the first time that he's going to be on the ballot. And again, just like the literal bribing to get into the debates and to get into the process. It's unbelievable. It's absolutely unbelievable. I want to read a story about like the full breakdown. Like, have they even interviewed people who made these rules to allow or change the rules to allow him in? That's what I'm not understanding here. I'm failing to understand why the DNC, after such a compromising, embarrassing leak where they had to fire Debbie Wasserman Schultz the day (laughs) before their convention. I mean, that's a huge deal because of fucking the WikiLeaks dumps. If that happened to them, why would they be acting this way now? Bending the rules to let Michael Bloomberg come in this late in the game, in the debates. It's absolutely nuts that they would be allowing this. It's they could beyond, actually help rebrand themselves and be like, like no. It's beyond parody, you know, because it's like basically the it antithesis is. of what Bernie's campaigning on. It's super bizarre. Well, it makes the Republican Party look less corrupt in comparison yeah, right. in the terms of their, the way they managed the last election. That's what's so fucking stupid about it. Do they not realize that? And then Howard Dean is there on Twitter, you know, with a, a tweet that he still hasn't even deleted, which any normal person probably would have deleted at this point, or the DNC would have at least said, hey, dude, you should delete this, where he's like, no, superdelegates don't have to, like, bend to the will of the people. Like, I do whatever I want. Like, it's basically <laughs> just him announcing... That as a super delegate, he doesn't give a fuck who the voters choose. He's going to go with Petey Boy. Yeah, and the thing is, even I respected the candidates at least for being upset about this because they see Mike Bloomberg as the real threat. They know that they're not going to pull any progressives from Bernie's wing. And now they just see Mike Bloomberg stepping on their toes after working really hard, spending a lot of money and putting a lot of their political capital in the race. Their egos are huge. You know, it probably would consolidate the centrist vote if they stepped out. But at this point, they can't even come to a consensus amongst themselves because they're so fucking ego-driven. So at the debate, I actually appreciated that you had Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Joe Biden trying to obliterate Bloomberg on the principle that he was trying to buy his way into the elections. But you don't see the corporate media doing that at all. Why is that? No. Because they're directly profiting off of his advertising. His branding his public image that he is putting into the advertising mechanisms and paying million, tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars into these corporate media agencies, they are loving it. This is how they survive. So just like that Les Moonves quote about CBS, Trump is great for CBS. He's horrible for the country. This is exactly what is happening here with Bloomberg. It is a gift to these networks who are receiving the ad money, given the profit incentive to keep covering Bloomberg in a positive way. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's this ridiculous feedback loop that you see playing out in the most dystopian way possible. Yeah, it is. And there's also probably some level of internal memos going down, you know, straight from these, these oligarchs who own those media networks. But the underlying message is Bloomberg is not to be attacked. Our goal here is still to attack Trump. So that's the way that those memos would come down. Is like, we're still criticizing the Trump administration. Like, Bloomberg is helping with that. So we don't want you to, like, go after him. Someone worth $60 billion has a lot more influence than just the money they can spend on TV advertising. They just have a lot of clout. They're threatening people. They can ruin people. Even just speaking badly against Bloomberg, if you're a TV pundit, that's that's kind of a risky endeavor maybe for some of these people to do. 
you know, maybe they don't want to get retaliated against. So I don't know, there's so many different ways you can look at it for with someone worth $60 billion. It's just totally unprecedented. And people were trying to tell me, oh yeah, Russia had an election where there were multiple billionaires running once. And it's like, well, were any of these people running in a Russian election worth $60 billion? Oh yeah, I forgot. Putin is supposed to be secretly the richest man in the world. Oh right, right, right. I forgot right, about right. that one talking point. Yeah, but Rob, so everything Rob, just eventually about, like, goes Hugo back Chavez, to that. And you know how like that talking point that it's like every single like socialist leader has like as much wealth as all the nationalized industries and stuff. I love that talking point from the right. It's very funny. There are talking points to basically close the loop and make all of these like anti-imperialist true talking points like seem like they're not true. They figured out little like weird <laughs> counter arguments to each one that are like hilariously fake, but they still somehow work on people. I was happy that Bernie hit Bloomberg right out of the gates about stop and frisk. It actually seemed like the media gave a softball. And this really surprised me is the media gave Bernie the opening question and gave him a basically a line of attack to go after Bloomberg with, like right out of the gates. So my initial thought was, will this be the only Bernie softball of the night? And yeah, I think it was misleadingly so, because making so much of the debate, which seemed like it went on forever, about Bernie bros, 20 minutes or so. Oh my God. That, that was so it was misleading that they actually seemed like they gave him that softball. But yeah, I mean... Should we talk about his misogyny? Uh, yeah, no, of course. I mean, we can get into his entire like policy platform and his horrific track record of actual implementation of policies as a politician. And before we do that, I just wanted to mention these ads, um, precisely what you're talking about, like black driven, you know, posing that he has black support. He's even going as far as basically pretending that Obama endorsed him. You know, this is what Joe Biden's whole campaign has been writing on, that that he's he ran with Obama and he's basically adjacent with everything that you think about Obama. That's him, right? Well, Bloomberg cynically like manipulated this Obama introduction to one of his campaign rallies, I guess, like 10 years ago, making it seem like Obama endorsed him. On the other hand, Obama hasn't said shit about this. Obama could easily come out there and be like, I never endorsed you, Mike. Why are you doing this? Like, the fact that that's legal, though, is pretty shocking. Well, yeah, and Biden has to be the one to speak for him, which is hilarious. I is that know. Biden is now <laughs> acting like he's Obama's voice. But at the same time, Obama, we already know from another leak a couple months ago, is that Obama was trying to convince Joe not to run this time and that he was actually deeply embarrassed by his performance so far. His campaign is being run very cynically, um, obviously, right? He's done several ads already about the Bernie bro thing. He's done several ads accusing Bernie of being Trump for no reason. This is someone who yeah, literally... Yeah, he's not a plutocrat. He's not a socialist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has a house. He has two houses or three houses. One of them is like... Oh, dude. <laughs> the fact that an ex-Obama official posted that screenshot of his house was absolutely bizarre. It looked like something you would see on like Zillow or like you're looking like an Airbnb that you wouldn't want to rent. You'd I look know, at that and be it's like, sad. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to diss on his house, but um, it didn't it didn't look luxurious in, by any stretch of the imagination. But the thing that's crazy about Bloomberg is that he literally hired Bolsonaro's election campaign communications director 
<laughs> to run his campaign. This is an open fascist who was propelled in Brazil due to the cynical stunts of this guy, in part. And Bloomberg hired him. He hired him. What does yeah, that tell you, I mean, dude? Not, not to diss on Ralph Nader at all when he wrote the book, um, Only the Super Rich Can Save Us, but we already had an example of what a super rich guy who's now worth $60 billion would be like running a gigantic city, one of the biggest cities in the world, New York City, and he turned it into like a fascist police state for 13 years or however long he was mayor, from 2002 to 2013. If he's just doing this for shits and giggles to try to hurt Trump or whatever, or get rid of Bernie or whatever, I mean, I guess. But what if he's actually doing this to win the presidency? I mean, it just really sucks that it's just basically like a billionaire fascist, you know, Trump versus a $60 billion fascist. Yeah. I mean, Michael Bloomberg played a huge role in the post 9-11 sort of terrorism fear mongering landscape. He really helped the Bush administration during that era prop up this sort of myth they were under the constant threat of terror. Stop and Frisk was a direct appendage of his war on terror policies. So I want to get into Bloomberg's war on terror policy, Robbie, because he took over the reign of terror after Rudy Giuliani in the wake of 9-11 in New York City. Uh, as a Bush-allied Republican. And to understand his stop-and-frisk policies and the criminalization and demonization of Muslims and people of color in New York City, we really have to understand the breadth and scope of what he did and how it kind of all fits into the post-9-11 scenario at Ground Zero um, in New York City. So why don't you go a little bit into that? Yeah, so... I think Rudy Giuliani tends to get a lot of the focus in terms of post 9-11 Bush-style policies being conducted in New York City. But what I didn't realize until fairly recently, and what I don't think most other people do either, is that Bloomberg actually was inaugurated as mayor in January of 2002. So pretty much every policy that emanated from 9-11, Bloomberg owned those policies so as criminal and as corrupt and as nutty as Rudy Giuliani is and what shady shit he was involved in, Bloomberg takes far more of the blame in terms of what came out of 9-11 in New York City. So I guess let's just start with his surveillance of Muslims um, because we already know that the FBI and Homeland Security and you know during the Bush era, there were all these um, informants and federal law enforcement officials surveilling mosques and Muslim communities pretty much illegally, you know, without probable cause, without any warrants, warrantless surveillance. Um, it was a blanket surveillance, pretty much. Um, they were, tr And they would also, you know, the FBI also would often use informants to try to radicalize people at some of these mosques. So all of these policies that were being done by all these feds, alphabet agencies during the Bush era were duplicated and employed by Michael Bloomberg's administration as mayor when he ran New York City. Michael Bloomberg wasn't just working with the FBI and Homeland Security. He was essentially doing his own version of the FBI and CIA in New York City 
using the help of a former CIA spook named David Cohen, who worked under Bloomberg's appointed New York Police Department police chief, Raymond Kelly. Raymond Cohen's job was to set up an FBI-CIA-style dragnet of constant, warrantless, blanket surveillance on Muslim communities in New York City. And it wasn't until the de Blasio administration, almost over a decade after 9-11, that two federal lawsuits actually succeeded in limiting the NYPD's warrantless mass surveillance program against mosques and Muslim communities. Bloomberg has said, you know, he's said authoritarian bootlicking things about the war on terror in general and the Bush era. He said of NSA spying uh, during the Snowden revelations that, uh, quote, we better hope the NSA is reading all of our emails, unquote. But I, th- I don't think people fully understand the breadth and the scope of what is actually referred to as a demographic unit. So we know the term and the phrase stop and frisk, and that's become sort of a buzzword that we can all, like, we've all heard of it. But I don't think anyone, none of our listeners have heard of the name, the official name for the blanket mass surveillance of Muslim communities that uh, Bloomberg put into place called the Demographic Unit. This is its official internal name. And I discovered this by reading up on the lawsuits that were filed. Now, there's a New Yorker article that came out uh, a couple of years ago. Um, It's called A New York City Settlement on Surveillance of Muslims. And it's referring to these two major lawsuits that went through. And I'm just going to read some segments from this article just so people understand how big of a deal this actually was. After the attacks of September 11, 2001, the New York City Police Department began an intense surveillance operation that focused on Muslims in New York City and beyond. So this is, this is interesting already, that it actually went beyond New York City. That's right. already weird. This actually went to New Jersey. This is how much of a crazy mayor Bloomberg was, is he actually had CIA, FBI-style... New York City Police Department, uh, d- police officers acting like they were special agents going outside the state to surveil Muslims. So let me continue. Plainclothes officers, sometimes <laughs> called rakers and informants or, quote, mosque crawlers, went anywhere that Muslims congregated. They eavesdropped on conversations in restaurants and cafes, cataloged memberships in mosques and student organizations, and it was later said even tried to bait people into making inflammatory statements. Oh, wow. That's a shocker. Nothing in this lawsuit actually goes in depth about any of these individual cases and what these uh, informants tried to bait people into doing. But I think we can be absolutely sure that if we examined each and every single one of these terrorism cases, we would find examples of people trying to be baited into committing violence by police informants. That's where I think is actually one of the most important areas to look. Unfortunately, I had a hard time finding specific examples of that. I can guarantee you that they're there. If this mass surveillance operation was happening, this is what that leads to eventually, is informants trying to egg on people to commit violence. So continuing, the operation was run by the police department's intelligence division, which was headed by David Cohen, who had previously held a high-ranking job in the CIA. The surveillance effort was so secret that a police spokesman would not confirm the existence of the, quote, demographics unit and intelligence division subgroup doing the monitoring. By any reckoning, the monitoring was extensive. The police identified and mapped more than 250 mosques in and near New York State. 
According to the lawsuit filed by the ACLU, the police identified 53, quote, mosques of concern. The lawsuit added, sometimes posting video cameras outside to watch congregates and collect license plate numbers. The police also paid attention to Muslim student groups, the lawsuit said, infiltrating several in New York City, with one detective attending a whitewater rafting trip organized by members of the Muslim Student Association at the City College of New York and reporting what they talked about and how many times they prayed. One man... One man who said that he had been paid up to $1,500 a month to work as a police informant declared in a sworn statement that he had provided the police with phone numbers from a sign-up sheet listing people who attended Islamic instruction classes and had been told to spy on a lecture at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, even though the police did not believe that the Muslim student group there was doing anything wrong. The man, Shamir Rahman, also said that he was told to use a strategy called, quote, create and capture. He said, I was to pretend to be a devout Muslim and to start an inflammatory conversation about jihad or terrorism and then capture the response to send to the NYPD. He said in a legal filing, later adding, I never saw anyone I spied on doing anything illegal, not even littering. (laughs) So (laughs) this, I mean, this is just absolutely disturbing. It's not surprising you know, I don't know exactly how that pipeline happened, but they were being instructed by and like trained by people from the federal government to act this way, uh, to like infiltrate these kind of groups. It wasn't just Muslim groups; it was also anti-war groups, leftist groups. But the in the case of what Bloomberg did in New York City and beyond, I mean, because this is what's so crazy about this, as I was just mentioning, is this is actually extended beyond the New York City limits. Um, yeah, I mean, it's worth mentioning that the NYPD also has stations and locations in Tel Aviv. I'm sure that they exchange a lot of these tactics between the IDF and the NYPD. And it's interesting that they've like outsourced their training to just straight up Israel. Yeah, so when I was saying before that he extended this policy, what's called the demographics unit beyond New York City... This has been documented, and it's actually really disturbing how he was able to get away with this. We're talking about a guy who was able to buy a third term for mayor, so I guess we shouldn't be that shocked that he was able to run a surveillance dragnet of Muslims beyond New York City and state lines, but still, it's it's pretty disturbing. So there's an article in NorthJersey.com, it's a local New Jersey outlet, um, it's interviewing a Muslim guy who actually was a veteran who served in the Iraq war, who is talking about what he thinks about Bloomberg running for president. And the article is called New Jersey Muslims on presidential candidate Bloomberg. He doesn't know the hurt he caused. And the article says around 2002, in the wake of the 9-11 terror attacks, the NYPD began collecting information on Muslim life in cities, including Patterson, New Jersey and Newark. In addition to New York, Police officials say they wanted to know where terrorists might go to lie low, Abby. So the NYPD sent people outside state lines because that's how, I guess, worried they were about Muslims. That they had to go check out the Muslims who were, quote, lying low in New Jersey outside the jurisdiction of the state. Officers photographed worshippers and license plates outside mosques and used informants who are known as mosque crawlers, which is something I already mentioned above, to listen in on sermons and conversations, reported the Associated Press. Mosques in Englishtown, Menelapan, and Somerset, 
These are all New Jersey, where Hassan prayed were among those targeted by police. He feared that their actions would hurt the security clearance he needed in his career as sergeant in the Army Reserves. He worried he would be treated differently if fellow soldiers and supervisors knew he attended mosques under surveillance. Now, I sympathize a little bit, you know, with his plight there, but I think that he's his concerns are a little misplaced. That he should be much more concerned about all the other Muslims who are being surveilled illegally for no reason, rather than his standing in the army. But continuing, <laughs> Hassan was among business owners, organizations, and students from New Jersey who sued the New York Police Department in 2012. In a settlement reached two years ago, the city agreed to pay $75,000 in damages and nearly $1 million in legal fees, while agreeing not to monitor people based on religion or ethnicity. It did not admit to wrongdoing. The NYPD mapped out every mosque within 100 miles of New York and even posted cameras to record who was coming and going. Yet these massive civil rights violations resulted in no credible leads. Despite court interventions and repeated public shaming, Bloomberg has failed to disavow or even apologize for treating countless innocent Muslims like criminals. His silence on such a massive civil rights failure is unacceptable. Yeah, I mean, his his silence is because he probably still fully 100% agrees with it. Just like he probably 100% still agrees with the stop and frisk policy. In private, he's probably still telling people, well, I lowered the crime. Like, are you telling me you didn't want to? Like, so, I mean, it's the fact that he's kowtowing and acting like he's ashamed of stop and frisk now is a total lie. 100%. Yeah, we saw him at the debate talk about this. You could tell he was really pained to like try yeah. to apologize for this because you of know that he just does not give a flying fuck and he said um you know i believe in the right to life first and foremost so of course i wanted to exacerbate this program of you know he adopted it from giuliani but he greatly greatly expanded it so then of course he can just say like well i didn't create stop and frisk you know and then he claims that at the end of his term he near abolished it that is completely false too and I mean, his quotes about it are just unbelievable. And this is just from like a couple of years ago. It's only when he decided to run for president and switch to Democrat and start pandering to moderates that he even remotely apologized for what happened. And this is like the man who oversaw not only the draconian crackdown on Muslim communities, what you're telling, it's just so horrifying and harrowing what you're describing. I can't imagine um, but also, like, the criminal justice system. I see all these ads here on TV about him lowering the incarceration rate and all that stuff. He oversaw the imprisonment of Khalil Browder at Rikers Prison, um, who simply stole a backpack and was in prison for years at Rikers because he couldn't meet bail. So solitary confinement for two of these years. I mean, that's just one case uh, when Bloomberg was mayor. Yeah, and I mean, when you look at what he even said about NSI spying and just foreign policy in general, we can get into like what he thought largely about the war on terror. But I think it's pretty obvious when you're looking at what his actions were in New York City to carry that out on a local level. But even just things like spying and this warrantless dragnet surveillance system that's in place, he, during the height of all of the stuff that you're talking about, he said, we better hope that the NSA is reading all of our emails. I mean, this is just the biggest lackey to the national security state I've ever seen. You know, it's nothing to sneeze at that you have this $60 billion, you know, net worth guy 
pushing all this war on terror stuff on the New York end of, you know, the equation. I mean, it's hugely, hugely important. If you think about the PR mechanics that allowed the war on terror to flourish the way it did, it couldn't have been done without the participation of like a acquiescent Bush lackey New York mayor, which is sort of weird to think about because a guy worth $60 billion, he wasn't worth that much back then, but he was worth so much money back then, you would think, why was he so beholden? Why did he just carry out all this propaganda for the Bush administration? That's something interesting of itself to me, because if the Bush administration didn't have an acquiescent participant in the war on terror to push all their propaganda like Bloomberg and Giuliani, they might have had actually some trouble pushing the war on terror the way that they did. Because think of how hugely important and integral the New York part of the narrative was to continue that fear mongering. So I, 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 th- I don't think people can underestimate that, like how important of a role Bloomberg played during the Bush era. And I, and I hope more of this stuff comes out over time because I feel that I was rather unprepared for it. Um, even though I know a shitload about the Bush administration and the war on terror, I didn't quite really f- see the full picture of this until he started running. And now I feel like I'm playing catch up, trying to like go back and be like, wait, wow, he was mayor for that long in New York? Well, of course he was part of a bunch of bad shit. And, you know, lo and behold, all you, all you have to do is just start turning over like the first five stones you find and you immediately find horrible things he was involved in. It seems like there are like hundreds of other stones to turn over still out there. So I'm trying to encourage people to keep looking in the, the direction that we're talking about now in terms of Bloomberg's role in the war on terror. Because I think there's a lot more there. I would guarantee there is. And it's worth mentioning also that the New York City Coalition for Accountability now, uh, again, the 9-11 Truth Movement in New York, you know, pushed by the 9-11 widows themselves. You can check out 9-11 Press for Truth to check out that initiative. But there was a proposal that did meet the criteria of a referendum legally. Yes. You know, I think 52,000 signatures or something like that. And it was rejected. And it wasn't put on the ballot. So this was for an independent investigation from New Yorkers themselves in 2009. Yeah, in 2009 under Bloomberg. And then again, once again, under de Blasio. So it happened twice. It got knocked down. And that shouldn't be any surprise, based just based on the fact that Bloomberg was a huge instrumental player in pushing the post-9-11 landscape and the war on terror propaganda. There's an article on the Daily Beast, actually, written by Spencer Ackerman, who has put out some stuff I don't agree with in the past, but this article is pretty sound. It's uh, called, Bloomberg Killed the Best Chance at Justice for the 9-11 Attacks. Now, Bloomberg was apparently one of the biggest forces behind lobbying against them holding the trial in New York City for Khalid Sheikh Muhammad and other people. Remember when Obama first got into office, that was like one of his attempts where it was like Eric Holder was like, we're going to try four of the 9-11 suspects in New York City. You remember that, right? Right. So Bloomberg is the one who destroyed that effort, uh, spent a massive amount of money and used all these different appendages that he has to try to knock that down. And he successfully did. Now, Bloomberg's other associations with 9-11 get into some interesting areas for me. In terms of the investigation of 9-11, we already know that he did not want any new ballot initiatives for a new investigation. But there's other things I don't think people know about Michael Bloomberg either, is that he actually has an engineering degree. 
He's kind of like a math genius from what I understand. So I find this really fascinating. There was an article written in January of 2002, right after he became mayor. I'm not sure where the original story comes from, but I'll just read a quote from the title of the article is, Bayo Steel Will Recycle World Trade Center Debris. Bayo Steel is a Shanghai Chinese company that bought most of the scrap steel from the World Trade Center. And here's what Bloomberg had to say about investigating the crime scene, a.k.a. the debris of the collapsed World Trade Center. The article starts off by saying, New York authorities' decision to ship the Twin Tower scrap to recyclers has raised the anger of victims' families and some engineers who believe the massive girders should be further examined to determine how the towers collapsed. Now, my comment there is also, this wouldn't be just to determine how the towers collapsed, but you can also gain some insights about the environmental impact from the debris, which, as we know, ended up killing possibly hundreds of first responders and people in New York City from cancer, from breathing in that air. So the article continues. But New York City Mayor Bloomberg insisted that there are better ways to study this tragedy of September 11th. So Bloomberg is actually here dissuading a forensic investigation of how the Twin Towers collapsed. And here's what he says. If you want to take a look at the construction methods and the design, that's in this day and age what computers do, said Bloomberg, a former engineering major. Just looking at a piece of metal generally doesn't tell you anything. So I find that very fascinating that he would be there not just trying to justify the shipping off of all the steel to China, um, which is also an odd thing that they shipped it off so quickly after the attacks, but that he'd also be saying that you don't even can't even glean anything in terms of investigations from looking at it, that you should just do it all in a computer simulation. That's That to me is interesting, and that's weird that he would be dissuading investigators at that point. A lot of first responders felt, and their families felt, that Bloomberg was actually threatening to have a protracted, indefinitely long legal battle against this, the city of New York to get first responders relief for basically dying of lung cancer. Bloomberg was using all of his lobbying power at the time to try to intimidate the first responders and families into taking the settlement. And if you read a lot of his statements about it, it like sounds like he's trying to be like nice and compassionate to the first responders, but you can read between the lines of it very easily and see that he's literally threatening a protracted long lawsuit. It's very like legalese speak to the first responders. Well, Robbie, he's spending all that money uh, spying on Muslims taking whitewater rafting trips. How could he possibly spare a exactly. cent for the 9-11 first responders? Yeah, it was basically an asbestos bomb. Um, you know, and I don't know how much, how many people actually got, just in terms of the environmental impact of what happened when, that, when those towers, <laughs> I know what word to use, <laughs> that amount of dust, you know, just in the air, obviously was really, really toxic and damaging, and that the EPA and Rudy Giuliani both covered that up and lied and said, yeah, we could continue business as normal, it's fine to breathe the air here, etc. Um, imagine the amount of dust that was still around New York City, like that had settled from the air, and that would still be able to be kicked up in winds that could pick it up and still carry it in the air. That's like an unquantifiable amount of toxic, cancer-laden dust that's probably still all actually all over New York City. Right. And there's like giant buildings kind of encapsulating all the dust that trapped it in areas that is kind of unlike any other major I was just city. gonna say, yeah, imagine just the rooftops of all these buildings. Did yeah. they spend 
the same amount of money they spent on spying on all these Muslim communities to clean up all the actual dust that was still on the ground that has asbestos in it. I mean, a, a high wind, um, all the cars driving around New York City, that stuff's going to get kicked up into the air all the time. So it's not just the air quality in and of itself immediately after 9-11 that was covered up. It was the Bloomberg administration continuing to cover up and not really do anything about the continuing environmental impact of 9-11. So Bloomberg is trying to dissuade people from looking at the debris for who knows why, but that could be one, just one of the reasons why, is that it would actually open the door to figuring out how devastating the environmental impact actually was and open New York City up for lawsuits. But that's just one reason. Um, the other reason is that there was never actually done a forensic investigation on how the towers collapsed. So that's another bizarre thing that was never done. And I guess that's really all. I, I don't really have anything specifically else about him and 9-11. I don't know if you, if you had anything else. No, I mean, I just have his quotes on stop and frisk, and then we go into his horrible foreign policy that just aligned with the Bush administration. So what you're saying about 9-11 isn't surprising when you realize that he was allied with the neoconservative administration of George W. Bush. And not 100%. only a fervent proponent of the Iraq war, he was also um, a cheerleader of Bush's second term. I mean, usually by that point, even people like Biden had turned around. Yeah. But he was such a fervent proponent of Bush that he was actually the host, one of the hosts at the 2004 Republican National Convention, specifically there to praise George W. Bush's efforts and the Iraq War. This is like a disqualifying factor now. This is what Supporting really hurt Hillary War. Clinton. Yeah. yeah, this is what's really hurting Joe Biden when Bernie says you supported the war. I didn't. When he's confronted about his support for the Iraq War, he's just like, I don't regret it. <laughs> He literally just still says, I do not regret it. In 2008, Bloomberg was still on this kick. He endorsed John McCain against Barack Obama. Unbelievable. I, I could see why Biden would be so upset and blowing a gasket over that uh, those ads where he's showing himself like holding Obama with his hand around his shoulder and stuff. Yeah. That is ridiculous. I didn't, right. I didn't realize he actually endorsed McCain. That means in turn, he also is endorsing Palin. Which is basically essentially the, who was the proto-Trump. I think more people, just really quick, I want to interject. I think more people need to look back at Sarah Palin and see her as sort of the original attempt for the Republicans to try to boost someone who's Trump-like. I, I have a lot more to say about that, but this is the first. That's and whose effort episode. was that? Steve Bannon. I mean, Steve Bannon was kind of the brain genius behind Sarah Palin's rise. Steve Bannon and Bill Crystal, dude. her a long time ago. They apparently Bill Crystal and Fred Barnes are the ones who brokered the first meeting between her and Republican elites in Alaska on their weekly standard Alaskan cruise. That's a fun fact that I don't think most people know that the neocons actually linked her up with the Republican Party for that nomination. Mike Bloomberg also oversaw the mass arrests at Occupy Wall Street from a unified command center in New York, possibly engineering and orchestrating the entire nationwide crackdown. This militarized expulsion of the camps uh, potentially was engineered from the top, obviously the DHS, but I think in conjunction with Bloomberg, because that's, of course, where Occupy was originating from. And it would go along with this whole militarization in general of New York City, the NYPD, just their attitude, the mass arrest where they caged and penned everyone in that giant, like, 
warehouse for hours and hours. Uh, my lawyer right now with the Georgia case ended up suing Bloomberg and winning a big class oh action lawsuit about this. But that was that was a complete violation of civil liberties. For some reason, I almost thought you were talking about the 2004 RNC because that was extremely over the top, the way that they treated protesters. Like how yeah. there's so many things that happened in New York that we've forgotten. That alone was like extreme levels of fascism. Absolutely. And when it comes to stop and frisk specifically, when he's confronted about this, he forgets that just a couple of years ago, he's on tape literally saying that white people were profiled too much, Robbie. There's this tape of him talking to white rich people in Aspen where he's just kind of casually talking about the program. Um, and he's just like 95% of your murders and murderers fit one MO. You take the description and Xerox it and pass it out to all the cops. They're male minorities, 15 to 25. That's true in virtually every city in America. And that's where the real crime is. You've got to get the guns out of the hands of the people that are getting killed. People say, oh my God, you're arresting kids for marijuana who are all minorities? Yeah, that's true. Why? Because we put all the cops in the minority neighborhoods. Why do we do it? Because that's where the crime is. And the way you get the guns out of the kids' hands is to throw them against the wall and frisk them. When a judge in New York City ruled stop and frisk as unconstitutional, he actually hired PR teams to defame her in the press. So he launched a big lobbying campaign, a big PR effort to uh, taint this woman's reputation and discredit her as a judge. It's fascinating because someone with $60 billion can do that really effectively without making it obvious that they're the ones doing it. I mean, because they exactly. could just they could just like blanket the media landscape with all these different forms of smears and attacks that make it seem like they're organic. I mean, this is how the oligarchy works. Absolutely. And you have Bill Maher, people like Bill Maher talking today about Bloomberg. First, he was endorsing Amy Klobuchar. Now he's defending Bloomberg because he is a neocon himself who hates Muslims. So it kind of goes hand in hand. Bill Maher in a recent show defended this tape that I just described. And he was like, let me ask you, he's like, what about this isn't true? What about what Bloomberg said is not true? And the audience started booing him. And he was just like, great, keep booing me. That's how Trump won. What a and it's fucking like, douchebag. It's like, dude, this is like the, the typical right wing trope where it's like black people commit all the crimes. And also that's how Trump won. What are you talking about, you little baby? And it also is worth mentioning that Bloomberg hates marijuana he declared marijuana legalization, quote, the stupidest thing anyone has ever done. Why? Because I guess he wouldn't be able to stop and frisk and throw exactly. little black kids' bodies against the wall and frisk them rigorously and throw them in jail for having a dime bag of weed. Because he fully understands, like a lot of these other authoritarian fascists do, that the war on drugs is by design a way to basically attack people of color and poor people. It's a way to basically just sweep them up. That's what it always was. So from his perspective, since he's really into surveillance dragnets and warrantless surveillance and just stop and frisk and be able to sweep up whoever he wants, legalizing marijuana would be really stupid. So from his point of view, that actually makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. No, you're totally right. And it has to be mentioned also what a staunch Zionist um, Bloomberg is. Not only did he oppose the Iran deal, not only does he support recognizing Jerusalem as the Israeli capital, but during the 2014 bombing massacre in Gaza, where 2,200 
people were killed, 500 children slaughtered. Bloomberg went on TV. You know, and this is at a time, even though Obama's a Zionist too and gave one of the biggest aid deals in U.S. history to Israel, at least he even said, this is unacceptable, <laughs> right? When he even made that kind of mealy mouth condemnation of the fact that Israel was bombing fucking schools and hospitals full of kids. Bloomberg went on TV at this time to actually defend the bombing of schools and hospitals, saying it's impossible for Israel to have a proportional response. Check it out. It's difficult to watch the images that we air um, on our network and other networks. This week, a school attack that had thousands in there. It was described as bloody mattresses, children killed who were sleeping next to their parents. Um, the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon said Thursday, nothing is more shameful than attacking sleeping children. Did Israel go too far? Israel cannot have a proportional response if people are firing rockets at their citizens. Can you imagine if one of the contiguous countries to America were firing rockets at America, the same people who are criticizing the Israelis would be going crazy demanding the president does more. Unfortunately, if Hamas hides among the innocent, the innocent are going to get killed because Israel just does not have any choice but to stop people firing Hamas, firing rockets at their citizens. They have a right to defend themselves, and America would do exactly the same thing. Doesn't the Geneva Conventions lay out that you cannot attack schools or hospitals? Nobody's attacking schools or hospitals. We're attacking Hamas. But Hamas is standing in the middle of a hospital. If they're standing in the middle of a hospital and they're firing rockets at your kids, what would you expect us to do? Would you really want us to not try to stop them? And unfortunately, if there are innocents getting killed at the same time, it's not Israel's fault. The White House called that attack totally indefensible. During Castled in 2009, when there was another relentless bombing massacre of Gaza and, of course, Operation Protective Edge in 2014, Mayor Bloomberg flew to Israel both of those times, left his duties as mayor, calling these visits expressions of New York City's support for Tel Aviv. Can you imagine? It's one thing to, like, help introduce legislation like Tulsi Gabbard did. It's one thing to defend it right, like Bernie Sanders even was doing, condemn audiences at the time in 2014 who were saying this is really fucked up. It's another thing to fly there on the ground and give your support for this genocidal apartheid regime and be like, you know what, I just am so moved, I'm so moved by this massacre that I need to go over there, leave my post at New York City, go over to Tel Aviv and stand shoulder to shoulder with Netanyahu to say, I support you. What kind of sadist are you? Absolutely fucking crazy. Unbelievable, dude. So let's just talk really quickly about the rest of his policy, and then we can summarize this episode. The fact that he's funded so many Republicans, it's not just that he was a Republican, it's that he is an oligarch who has literally invested millions and millions of dollars to keep the Senate Republican majority I don't know if it's a super PAC, but he funds this organization that has just given millions of dollars to keep really racist, rabid right-wing Republicans in power. He is a top fundraiser for dozens of racist Republicans, including Peter King. This is the guy who said in 2017 that the real America is under siege from peoples of color. Quote, we can't restore our civilization with somebody else's babies. 
He had a fundraiser for Peter King like at his house. This is who Bloomberg is. It's called Independence USA. Spent $3 million on ads alone backing Governor Snyder. Bringing us back to Fahrenheit 11.9. Watch that again. Rewatch what happened in Flint. This was after Flint. This was when Governor Snyder was having a re-election bid. Months after Flint. Bloomberg held a fundraiser for Snyder at his home. After Snyder won, Bloomberg said Snyder was, quote, an extremely competent guy who took on the unions to get Detroit and Michigan going in the right direction. And he was reelected despite being attacked by the unions. Real union-busting guy, Bloomberg. And also, maybe that had something to do with the millions of dollars you were pumping into his election, dude. He also praised Snyder's expansion of public charter schools. I mean, you just can't get any worse than Bloomberg as the true embodiment of a Republican parading around as something else now. I mean, he's just the quintessential Republican in all the worst ways. A couple other examples of that. As mayor of New York City, not only did he try to ban big gulps, remember that whole debacle? Yeah. But he also continued to try to pass a living wage bill. As mayor of New York City, this bill would have only given 500 workers in New York City $10 an hour. Does anyone know how expensive it is to live in New York? (laughs) It would have literally only raised their wages to $10 an hour. And he compared that bill to Soviet communism, threatened to veto it if it passed, and even went as far as saying, if the veto is overridden, I'm going to file a lawsuit. I'm going to file a lawsuit to block this bill. Also is on record calling paid sick leave a goddamn awful law. Can you get worse than him? I don't even know if like Trump is on record saying this kind of shit. No, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that whatever Bloomberg represents, just in terms of the amount he's worth is more more dangerous than Trump. I, I just I think that it'd be hard to make the argument that Trump somehow is more dangerous than him. Rhetorically, and the, the evangelical hate mobs that Trump is riling up, those are dangerous. I don't think that can be denied that that it does present a form of danger in and of itself, but not at the level of like a $60 billion net worth oligarch. You know, what what he is capable of. I mean, I just, it, it'll be fascinating to see what happens moving forward to see if like people start pivoting their support behind Bloomberg. Like where the, who are the neocon never Trumpers going to support? Is it going to be Bloomberg? I wouldn't be surprised if it was by the end of this contest. Well, you've seen a lot of never Trumpers say if it's between Bernie and Trump, of course they're going to vote for Trump. And it's like, oh, that didn't take long. Yeah. Well, that, that, yeah, for sure. Just some funny oh, of backstory. they'd support Bloomberg. Yeah. Just some funny backstory about Bloomberg. Just coincidental is that um, Bloomberg actually got his start at Salomon Brothers, uh, which was a large Wall Street investment bank at the time. Which is incidentally, that's the name of Building Seven. Uh, was the Solomon Brothers Building? He actually made most of his money coming out of that firm. He was only a millionaire uh, after he got laid off. But I guess he invented or came up with these like computer terminals that were like before the internet was even really popular. That would feed all this financial information instantaneously to all these major companies. That was mainly like what Bloomberg's business was some kind of weird internal Wall Street monitoring system. That's really interesting. Yeah, because we were wondering how did he actually get his money? Yeah. How did he become a billionaire? You know, he claims to be like the self-made billionaire. That seems really shady. What the hell was that about? 
Yeah, Bloomberg has more sexual harassment allegations and discrimination lawsuits, not necessarily just against him, but against his company than Trump does. We're talking about 40 brought by over 64 women over the past several decades. A lot of these cases and lawsuits against him were him discriminating against pregnant women at his company. One person who said that she was pregnant, he said to kill it, kill the baby. Another one who told him she was trying to find a nanny to so she can come to work. He said, it's a fucking baby. It doesn't know the difference between you and anyone else. All you need is some black who doesn't speak English to rescue it from a burning building. Those are just two examples. You know, you can look at what he said about LGBTQ people, trans people specifically saying, um, no one cares about some guy wearing a dress and whether he, she, or it can go to a locker room with their daughter. That's not a winning formula. Talking about like how presidential campaigns shouldn't focus on trans rights. Trump, of course, directly has dozens of women who have claimed that he has actually sexually harassed, assaulted, and or raped them. So I think that Trump definitely takes the cake with serial misogyny and serial rape. I definitely think that it's really hard to argue that Bloomberg is worse than Trump. I think that they are pretty much two sides of the same coin. And I absolutely will never vote for someone like Bloomberg, of course. I wouldn't vote for someone like Pete Buttigieg, shit, let alone Bloomberg. But I think that millions and millions of Americans agree. You know, as you were mentioning, like, this is Trump. This is absurd that the Democratic establishment is posing Bloomberg as somehow the solution to Trump because he's another oligarch who embodies Trump in every way, who who is pandering to Republicans. Like, when has that ever worked? Why would that work now? It's really, really dangerous. But I do not think that Bloomberg is worse or more dangerous than Trump. I think it's hard to make that case. I've seen a lot of people say that they would vote for Trump if Bloomberg was a nominee. And I was like, why would you do that? You know that there's third parties and you know that you could also just not vote. <laughs> like, why? Really doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? But that aside... Yeah, I mean, when you're looking at all of Bloomberg's history, it's really hard to make the case that he's any better than Trump. Let's just say that. You know, when it comes to the Me Too movement, he said, let's just let the courts decide. Never has sided with any women victims, of course, because he himself is the center of, of, you know, what Me Too is about. I mean, dozens of women forced to sign NDAs. He got pummeled at the debate about this. He even said, like, let me take a second to make my case And his little mousy voice looked horrible. He even said during the debate, they didn't like a joke I told, Robbie. I mean, such old school misogyny. I I feel like I was watching Mad Men. That was was really ridiculous. Even with all those things out there about him, somebody actually brought up this because I thought this was a pretty valid point, is why are the Democratic primary debaters, like the people on the debate stage, throwing more... Uh, fiery accusations at Bloomberg than any of the mainstream media currently is. They, they're they barely talking about it. I saw Kevin Gastola say that BBC was talking about like the horse face lesbian comments and some of the other comments Mike Bloomberg made, but you don't see those being talked about very much on CNN or MSNBC. And that's the danger here is that even with all these you know terrible things coming out about him, he's so powerful and just the amount of advertising money that he's generating for them, they're going to be careful about talking too harshly about him. So that's, I mean, that's the problem that we're up against is it, it almost doesn't matter. It almost, in, in some way, 
the truth is only going to come out from either like independent journalists, people on the left who are progressive, or like at these actual debates. The people on the stage are going to do a better job of bringing these points out about Bloomberg than the media is. Exactly. You hit it on the head. I mean, it's all about advertising dollars. And that's why we're seeing the mainstream media just take a pass. They're not attacking him the way that they should. I've barely heard them talk about just the concept of buying his way in the race. It's only commentators who slip that in on a panel. Mm -hmm. This should be front and center. This is outrageous. This is what an oligarchy is. Um, the last thing I'll say about Bloomberg, and I want you to respond to this, is the Ghislaine Maxwell photos, the fact that he's in Epstein's little black book. Yeah. I mean, you really cannot make this up. It goes balls deep <laughs> with Harvey we Weinstein, <laughs> who was just, at the time of us recording this, was just convicted. Um, he, he just actually got like something like three years in pr jail, which is pretty shocking. Yeah, what else don't we know? I mean, other strange things that happened at Bloomberg that I think need to be more deeply examined is how one guy could be hit with two bioterror letters 10 years apart. That's kind of suspicious. Um, there are just so many things that need to be d more deeply explored with him. And I think one of the most important areas that listeners of this podcast can look into is these individual terrorism cases that the NYPD was instrumental in during Michael Bloomberg's tenure as mayor. Because I think what you'll find is there's a lot of very suspicious um, charges and convictions there that have uh, informants involved. Yeah, God knows how many entrapment cases Bloomberg was facilitating. I mean, if that if his main focus was like dragnetting Muslims, I can't imagine how many innocent people were entrapped and how many of these cases that he was applauded for stopping and thwarting were just simply concocted by like the NYPD. Absolutely. And concocted for what reason? Did Bloomberg just want to be able to increase his own authoritarian reign in New York State and New York City? Or was he sort of working as an appendage of the Bush administration's prop war on terror propaganda machinations? It's, it could have been a mixture of both. He really did an enormous favor to the Bush administration to keep up that front of the war on terror for so long. I can't stress enough how important that was for the Bush administration. I mean, even just the presence, the militarized police state-like presence in New York City when I first visited in 2003 was insane. It felt like you were in some kind of dystopian, futuristic movie where it was like martial law in New York City. There were army fatigue wearing soldiers in the subways holding machine guns, like all over the New York subways. In 2003, there were tanks on Wall Street with SWAT police walking around. I mean, this was, the norm this was normalized in New York City somehow when I went there. And from what I've heard from people who lived there, that continued for many, many years. Like, that became a, the normal way of life in Manhattan. Soldiers with guns walking around Times Square and stuff, like, all the time. And let's just sum this up here because, you know, there is no way that he would win against Trump. He is a horrible public speaker, absolutely abysmal, mortifyingly bad. I had never seen him publicly speak before, right before the debate, actually, I saw this, this speech of his where he couldn't even get words out correctly. He seemed like a little mousy little boy. I don't even know how he won public office in the first place. Actually, I do. He's worth $60 billion and he buys his way into everything. If he didn't have that money, he would be nothing. He can't talk his way out of a paper bag. 
Let's face it, Donald Trump is the world's biggest schoolyard bully with no respect for civility, decency, or the facts. And our party needs a candidate who can go toe-to-toe with him and take the fight to him, and I'm going to do that. Just think about the past few weeks. The president has been busy insulting the Democratic candidates. He does that a lot, you know. When you can't defend your record on health care or wages or the environment, you resort to insults. Well, Donald Trump's insults do not bother me. I've never run away from a fight, and I can just tell you he's not going to bully, bully me. I keep saying Billy, bully me, and it won't, I won't let him bully you either. I've been pretty, pretty blessed. There is nothing Trump can do or say that can hurt me, but he has hurt a lot of other people. And that's why I'm running, to stand up for every American who has lost his job or lost their insurance or can't pay college tuition. Those are the people that are depending on us in this room to go and get rid of Donald Trump and put somebody in the White House that can do the job. I mean, just imagine him debating Trump, Robbie. Imagine how much he would be obliterated. Trump would crush him in double digits. Oh, yeah. Look at these ad campaigns. I mean, he's spending billions of dollars on, on ads and stuff, paying for all these meme generators. Did you see these billboards that he's putting up in states that Trump is visiting? It's a joke. To try to dunk on Trump, did you see these where he's like, Trump eats burnt steak? Yeah, I did. It was fucking dumb as fuck. And just, you know, more parallels. I wanted to mention this really quickly because even though it's obvious that he's extremely misogynistic, and he has you know dozens of sexual harassment allegations, just more Trump-like behavior. It is also interesting that Bloomberg has spoken inappropriately about his own daughter, similarly to how Trump has spoken about Ivanka. Apparently back in 1999, a report published in Wired quoted Bloomberg as inappropriately describing his 16-year-old teenage daughter as, quote, busty and blonde, saying that he had arranged dates for her in every city in China during a visit that they had in the country. Why would he do that? Why would he do that to a 16-year-old daughter? Tall, busty, and blonde. Absolutely sick way to talk about your fucking kid, man. That is unbelievable. Jesus Christ. He's so desperate with this ad campaign, he's paying off what looks like Broadway stars to do these weird scenes with him from like Little Mermaids Under the Sea and Mary Poppins. I don't know what these are. Um, It's very ominous content. Jack Allison was posting a couple clips and it just makes Mike Bloomberg look like an alien in a human suit, like the guy from Men in Black. He is absolutely not human and he looks bizarre. Uh, check this out. There you have six No barracuda, not like Bermuda in NYC. Down here we got snapping turtles. Up there we got big fat bugs. Down here the whales making trouble. Up there everyone's taking drugs. New Yorkers, the bravest people. The cops on the beat, they care. It's true, firefighters, teachers. We got heroes everywhere. So what is all this ad money doing? Ads and money do buy you into the arena. 
we're living in a country that is unmatched in terms of political spending and political corruption. Um, and that's why Mike Bloomberg coming in with $60 billion, being able to just do whatever he wants, spend however much he wants to influence the election is something that we actually don't know what the effects will be. We don't know how devastating the outcome will be of what Mike Bloomberg's impact has been and will be on this election. Something that can point us in that direction to really understand how impactful the money spent has been is that three mere months ago, polls found that Mike Bloomberg was widely disliked with the highest negative approval rating in the race. Now, three months later, after pouring half a billion dollars into the race, he's a top three contender for the Democratic nomination. He's polling at 19% among Democrats. That's how powerful ads are. That's how powerful ads are. He even has the audacity to call on the other Democratic centrists to drop out. Even though he's such a latecomer, Johnny come lately, he's just like Klobuchar, Buttigieg, and Biden should drop out and just let me take on Bernie. And all of this is coming down to not necessarily Bloomberg winning the nomination. We already know at the rate that Bernie is crushing it in the first three primary states and hopefully get California soon on Super Tuesday, we already know that Bloomberg is not going to get the majority of delegates or the majority of votes. That's not what this is about. This is about a contested convention. This is about Bloomberg, Biden, Buttigieg, Warren, Klobuchar staying in the race as long as possible to steal delegates, to siphon energy and siphon votes and Steyer from Bernie. So A, they can build up that false argument and false equivalency that centrists put together have more power and interest than someone like Bernie Sanders does, which is totally fake. Bernie Sanders is pulling in an entirely new base of the voting population that you can't account for. But also to say that Bernie doesn't have a majority of the delegates and he only has a plurality of the delegates at the convention. And that's when they're going to try to openly steal it. If Bernie doesn't crush it completely and just sweep victories across the entire electoral arena, they are going to do everything that they can and this isn't hidden. We don't need a DNC leak to tell us this. This is totally open. This is what they're saying every day on corporate media and in their speeches. That they are not going to let someone like Bernie take the nomination. That it's too dangerous to let Bernie take the nomination. And you saw them all answered at the debate. They're all against democracy. They will all pledge to usurp that nomination and usurp that candidacy from Bernie Sanders, even if he does get the, the majority of delegates and votes, which you would think in a democracy, that means that he has clear consensus from the electorate. So that's what this is. And a report in Politico confirmed that this is what Bloomberg is doing, that Bloomberg is courting the superdelegates. He is plotting alongside Biden and Buttigieg to steal the nomination on the second ballot. So keep that in mind. He's in this race to spoil it as much as he can, not, not to win, just to spoil it. On one hand, it's kind of cartoonish that he is propped up as kind of the antithesis of what Bernie embodies, you know, challenging the oligarchy, challenging billionaires, challenging the Democratic establishment. He embodies the worst aspects of the Democratic establishment. The fact that he's even called a Democrat, the fact that Democrats are lauding and defending him as someone who can beat Trump, who can save democracy, it's insane. I feel like I'm in the twilight zone. So thank you so much for listening to our thorough takedown of Mike Bloomberg. I really hope you enjoyed the program. And 
I hope to hear what you think. I hope to hear your feedback on our SoundCloud timeline, on iTunes, and social media. Check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash Radio. We have a bunch of tiered gifts, documentaries that you can watch for free from Robbie and I, and also vinyl sticker packs at a certain tier. So throw us some love if you like the show and rate us on the platforms that we talked about. Thanks so much, everyone. Peace out. 